Well, good morning. If we've not met, I'm Nathan Brand. I'm the senior pastor here at Berean, and we're glad you're here to worship with us. A lot of, a lot of good things happening today. After this service, there's going to be a time of celebration and honoring Alex and Kelsey Fleming for their service here. So please join it off. There we go. We've, uh, we've got to get rid of that cake, so uh, please show up and uh, say hi to Alex and Kelsey. Um, also, I, I want to remind you, next week our service is going to be outdoors, so bring a, bring a uh, chair of some sort, a you know, camp chair, what have you. And fathers, there is a dress code for this. Jeff Custer, will you please stand up and demonstrate the dress code? Thank you. So that uh, is, is what you need to come dressed as next week. So just want to let you know. Also, uh, as many of you know, um, Alex is stepping off staff, and we've been seeking the Lord to bring the man to fill that position, uh, kind of a new position, which we, which we call the next-gen uh, pastor position. And I can't tell the whole story today, but we just sense that God has been faithful to bring that man, to bring that person. And uh, I'm going to put a slide up here. We're, yep, in any moment now. Okay. There we go. This is Neil and Caitlin Johnson and their daughter Rosemary and their little boy Tobiah. And... God has brought us this man, and he's going to be coming on staff on August 1st, and you'll get more information about who Neil is and uh, how God brought him to us, but we're grateful, and, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not keeping hyperbole when I say I believe that God has really brought him to us to serve us and serve this body, and will be a great addition, and the man is a firecracker, so... Um, I think you'll get you'll look forward to meeting him and, and knowing him. So, well, today is audience participation Sunday. I need your help through this message, uh, and it'll keep you engaged, keep you awake, hopefully, because there's some things in life that just surprise us, right? And we either see it happening to somebody or it happens to us, and it's so unexpected. That we say, I didn't see that coming. Okay? I didn't see that coming. So we're, we're going we're gonna to work on that. We're going to do a little practice here. Okay? Let's just say it all together. I didn't see that coming. Okay, a few practice scenarios. You know, if you're a Star Wars fan or, or learning about Star Wars and you've seen the, the, first, the first version, right? A New Hope. And then you get to the Empire Strikes Back. And at the very end, you discover that Darth Vader is Luke's dad. You say, I didn't see that coming. If you're a young married couple, and, and you're so in love. I mean, she is so wonderful. He is so wonderful. And you're so in love, and you, you, nothing could come between you. And then you have that first knockdown, drag-out fight, you know. And it's usually over something trivial. Between Carrie and I, it was a gas grill versus, you know, a charcoal grill. Charcoal's better, by the way. But it's trivial, right? And you, and, and you just thought, who, who thought this conflict would come? And you would say, I didn't see that coming, right? 
And so, um, even in our, our popular culture, back in 2016, Donald Trump becomes the President of the United States. And the mainstream media said, <laughs> in the Bible, Jesus the Messiah goes to the cross, is put to death cruelly, and we think that's the end. But on the third day, he rises from the dead, <laughs> appears to more than 500 witnesses. And his disciples said, I didn't see that coming. The year 2020. I didn't see that coming, right? That's where we've been. And so today we're back in the book of Judges as we engage this story. And the people that God raises up to accomplish His purposes are unexpected to the point we might say, I didn't see that coming. But if you know the story, if you know the story, uh, or if you don't know the story, it may make you say, I didn't see that coming. And while the Lord may use une the expected, unexpected, the least likely, ultimately, as He uses these unlikely people, He is the Savior. And that's what we're going to see in this account of this particular uh, episode of Judges. So let me pray, and then we can get into God's Word and be encouraged. We're in Judges chapter 4 today you want to open your Bibles up there, but let me pray and then we'll dig in. So Lord, we're so grateful, Lord Jesus, that you are the wonderful, merciful Savior. And as Kelly said earlier today, we want to have our eyes fixed on you. So give us grace to do that through your word today. Open the eyes of our heart and help us to engage you and Lord, engage us. Change us. Don't let us be the same. Make us men and women who are more like Jesus. Lord, if there's somebody in here today who does not know you, Lord Jesus, I pray you'd be opening their eyes to see the truth of who you are, even through this Old Testament account. So, Lord Jesus, it's in your precious name I pray these things. Amen. So, like I said, we're in, we're in chapter 4. In chapter 3, we met Ehud, the left-handed judge, who kills a big bully... And then calls the people of God to, you know, he leads an uprising to destroy the oppressors that are in the land. And so at the end of that chapter, we find out that the, the land, and we also meet another guy named Shamgar who kind of continues his work. The land enjoys peace for 80 years. That's a good, good stretch. But then in the end, Ehud dies. And so this is where we pick up the story in chapter 4. It says this, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord now that Ehud is dead. And that makes us say, I didn't see that coming. Said no one who read through Judges. Because this is a continuing pathetic pattern that's problematic. You see, what happens is the leader, the judge, if you will, dies. And then people forget God. It's like He never existed. It's like, oh, we've we got to find a new way of life. We've got to find a new way of doing things. And they, and they start following false gods. And so what, what's happening here is the people have lost their sight of the Lord. It's a lot of what Kelly was mentioning, why we have these, these times to remember what God has done. But again, the visible leader is gone. He or she is out of sight. And the problem 
is more common than we think. Let me just recount biblically what happens. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai in Exodus 32, right? He's there too long. And the people say, we don't know what happened to this Moses. By the way, they have already received the Ten Commandments, which starts out with saying, you shall have no other gods than me, right? I'm the Lord your God, you'll have no other gods than me. And they say, forget, we don't know what happens to him, so Aaron, make us new gods. We're going we're gonna to go back to Egypt. They forgot. They get their eyes off of the Lord because the leader is not in front of them. And all through the judges this happens. And then we get to the kings later on in salvation history. And then they do what is evil in the eyes of the Lord because they, they lead the people into idolatry. They get their eyes off the Lord. But they be, the people have become dependent upon the leader to mediate their relationship between themselves and the Lord. You see where I'm going with this? If the leader leaves or dies or is unfaithful, let me ask you a question. Does that change God? It doesn't, does it? He's still the same. Do we always need to have that visible leader out in front of us to hear his or her voice from God? You know, God is calling us to each cultivate our own relationship with Him. You know, as 21st century Christians... Many of us have many Bibles. We have more than one Bible. That's where God oftentimes speaks to us every day in His Word. He calls us to come and abide with Him. Your relationship with Christ is not, I hope I'm adding to it today, but it's not contingent upon me. I'm going to go the way of all this earth one day. And if Jesus doesn't come back, God is still going to be the same. He's calling us to cultivate a relationship with Him. And yes, God raises up leaders to influence, to love and loyalty towards the Lord, to care for the flock. Yes, that's true. But ultimately, you have your own relationship with the Lord. That's something that you need to pursue. You need to um, you know, make a priority in your life. And by the way, you can fool me. You know what I'm saying? Because when people come to me and talk to me about what's going on in their lives, they can, you can fool me about how things are going, how, how you're doing in, in following the Lord, or, or what you're not doing in following the Lord. And you, you can fool me, but you, you can't fool God. He sees. He knows. So, you know, any leader is not the point of focus. It's the Lord Himself. It's not the leader it's the Lord. And this is going to come into play here a little bit later in the story. So we're back in the story. Because the people have lost track of God, they've lost track of the Lord, they start following other gods. And then the Lord Himself allows oppression to happen. Pick it up at verse 2. So the Lord sold them to the hands of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Hersheth Hagoyim. Because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried out to the Lord for help. So, a little geography lesson here. Hazor is up here. Just This is the uh, Sea of Galilee. It's about 10 miles north. And then Sisera is over here in Hersheth Hagoyim, right? And there 
affecting all these tribes, Asher, Naphtali, uh, Zebulun, uh, Lower Manasseh here, Issachar. And they're basically having a pinching effect on this whole area. And then there's a river, the Kishon right here, that runs there. That'll play into the story as well. But there is oppression coming. And we're not talking about just raising taxes. We're talking about raping, pillaging, stealing. It is just outright oppression. And the people of God are finding out what it's like to be under the kingship of a, of a Canaanite pagan king versus the kingship of the Lord. And the thing about the, these 900 chariots is they're like, I would say, the equivalent of modern-day tanks versus infantry. They basically can take out 20 to 1. They're they are maneuverable, they're fast, they're made of iron, and they can run people over. And so the people are under this kind of oppression. So it makes them cry out to the Lord, okay, God, you got our attention. We, we blew it. Okay? So God raises up a wise woman. Verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophet, the, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at the time. She held court under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. So God now raises up a woman to lead Israel. And usually it's a man. So we might say, I didn't see that coming, right? What kind of leader is she? Number one, she's a prophetess. She's a prophetess. That means, by the Holy Spirit, she is speaking the Word of God and direction to God's people. Particularly, we'll see to a man a little bit later. God is revealing His will through her. Remember, at this time, they only have the first five books of Moses. And they don't have them in print like we do. So, she is a prophetess. She's speaking the word of God. She's, God is revealing his will through here. Number two, she is a judge slash counselor. Okay? She's a judge slash counselor. She holds court to settle disputes between people. And she, like Moses in Exodus chapter 18, verses 24 through to 26, he settles the disputes between the people of God, and she does what's right in God's eyes, not what's expedient to the powerful or those who would, who would pay her the right price or who would do it right in their own image or their own ways. She uh, is speaking for God as a wise counselor. She's holding court down south here. That's where Bethel and Rama are. So the conflict is up here. She's down here. So it gives her a little bit of, a little bit of um, insulation, if you will, with the conflict. But Deborah was a wise judge. And ultimately, you know, all the judges point to Jesus somehow. And this points to how Jesus is a wise judge and that he is our wonderful counselor. Through Deborah, that is what is being revealed because she is one who upholds righteousness and justice, just as Isaiah 9, 7 says. Deborah is not a warrior like Othniel or Ehud or Shamgar 
who are repelling the outside you know, oppression. Rather, she is a mother to Israel, as we find out in the next chapter, chapter 5, which was really a poetic account of what happens after this. And she has a nurturing style to impress upon God's people the care and the holiness of God, and also points to the character that he's demanding of them. Be holy. Don't be like the nations. Be God's people. Don't follow these false gods like Baal or Astra. And she is the one who's helping shape their character, just like a mom would in a family. Don't we say, when we see someone acting badly, we say, who's their mother? Right? That's the kind of impact this woman is having. And she's trying to say, don't be like the nations. Remember who you are. You're the people of the Lord. He has redeemed you. He has called you. Now, time out for a second here. Maybe you're feeling a little tension. I think Scripture clearly teaches that men are to lead the church and to lead families. We can see that in 1 Timothy 2, uh, 12 and 13, Ephesians 5. But, let me say this, we need to be careful not to negate the gifting and the godly influence of women he he, in his wisdom, raises up. You need to be careful about that. Let me just recount a few biblically. Miriam, Deborah, Abigail, Esther, Anna, Mary, Priscilla. And I haven't named them all. In our own time, Corey Tenboom, Elizabeth Elliott, Edith Schaefer, Anne Graham Motts, Johnny Erickson Tata, Mother Teresa, and lesser-known women who we know who has spoken like a mother in our lives and influenced us to love God, to love others, and shaped us and guided us. God, in His wisdom, raised them up. So let's be careful not to negate what God is doing through those women. The church will be less without them. The church will be less without them. And in this case, God wants to use this wise woman to inspire a warrior. Look at verse 6. She sent for Barak, the son of Ananoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead them up to Mount Tabor. And I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River, and give them into your hands. Okay? So, Naphtali, uh, Kishon Naphtali is about right here. Mount Tabor is right in here. And so he's calling him to go up to here and here and recruit 10,000 guys and take him up to Mount Tabor. And, and uh, Sisera is going to take him down here and bring him down to the bottom of Mount Tabor for this encounter. When I use the word inspire... Again, this is where she's being prophetic. She's speaking the words of God. The God-breathed words, God has called you to do this, Barak. And by the, word, by the way, the word Barak in Hebrew means lightning bolt, which is kind of ironic in light of who they, the pagans say who Baal is. But God is going to use Barak as a lightning bolt to, gather, to do his purposes. He's going to gather 10,000 men, and then 
God is going to give Sisera and his chariots into his hand. It's a promise. The Lord has spoken. We're going to overcome this more, uh, better equipped force of 900 chariots, and I'm going to give them into your hands. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm a little leery when I say God has a wonderful plan for your life, and this is what it is. It sounds good. Hey, we could be, we could be rid of these, these oppressors. But maybe it sounds too good to be true. And Barak is human. And he needs something more. He needs the visible leader to be with him. And so in verse 8 he says, Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you do not go with me, I won't go. So it's conditional obedience. It's conditional obedience. He's saying, I, I need to make sure that this is really of God. And so it's, it's easy for Deborah to say, go up and do this, but okay, then I need to know you have your skin in the game, so come with me. Because if she's willing to risk her life, then, then maybe this is really from the Lord. But here, here's the thing. Deborah and God oblige him, but he's going to lose a little something in this. It's going to be a little less than what God initially intended. So in verse 9, she says, Certainly I'll go with you, said Deborah. But, because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. Because you're setting conditions on God's command. Yeah, you're going to be successful. You're going to, God's going to use you to deal with the chariots. But the leader, Sisera, that, that honor is going to go to a woman. And you have to understand, you know, culturally, that was a bit of a dig. Someone's going to say, yeah, Barak, a woman bested you. We don't know who that woman is right now, but it looks like it might be Deborah. Because she's going to be up there with him. So, um, here's the question I have for us at this point in the, in the message. When you know God is calling you to do something, I mean, you know. You know He's calling you. You don't see how it's going to happen, but you know. Do you put conditions out there? Yeah, Lord, I'll do this if X or Y or Z. You know, and oftentimes God says, okay, all right, I'll meet you. But it takes a little bit of the luster off of what He intended when we set conditions. Will we follow the Lord unconditionally when we know He's calling us? So, let's continue with the story. Last half of verse 9. So Deborah went with Barak to Kedesh. There Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah went up with him, also went up with him. So Barak is successful. He recruits these 10,000 10, men. But there's still no match for Sisera and his 900 chariots. They're still going to be mowed over unless God does something. And then the story changes here for a second. We get some background information. We're going, what, what is this about? Verse 11. Now Heber, the Kenite, left the other Kenites 
the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree of Zainam near Kadesh. So that's near Kadesh Naphtali. That's to the east. And looking at this, we might say, I didn't see that coming because we're going, why is this here? Who cares? What does this have to do with anything? Well, the Kenites were the nomadic clan that Moses had married into. His wife, Zipporah, was the Kenites. Also the Midianites. But that was, that was the clan that he married into. And his, his father-in-law was Jethro. And it says that uh, his brother-in-law was Hobab. This is the tribe that traveled with Israel for the 40 years in, in the desert. They're with them. And if they weren't considered, you know, relations, they were at least considered allies. But Heber leaves the, the main group of the Kenites. And he goes up here to um, Kadesh Naphtali. And he pitches his tent up there. And what we find out in verse 17, that he actually starts having friendly relations with Jabin, this oppressive Canaanite king. And we're asking the question, okay, who, whose side are you on? Who, who, who are you loyal to in this whole thing? Are you aligning with power? So this is going to be significant a little bit later. But back to the story. Verse 12. When they told Sisera that Barak and son of Ammonon had gone up to the Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned from Hersheth Hagoyim the Kishon, to the Kishon River all his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. So he says, hey, I got him bottled up on Mount Tabor. But remember, the Lord's saying, I'm luring them in to deal with them. And then in verse 14, Deborah said to Barak, Go! This is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? And the answer we'll find out is yes. So Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And what we find here is the faith of an obedient warrior brings deliverance to all. Verse 15. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. You know, Barak, when he was up on Mount Tabor, he had a decision to make. Okay, do I really believe that the Lord is speaking through Deborah? Do I, do I really believe that we're gonna, when we get to the bottom of this mountain, as, as Sarah is coming from the west to the east, along the Kishon River, that the Lord's going to give them into my hands? Their forces were outgunned, if you will. But he obeyed. And he trusted that God was speaking to him. And by the way, because of that, he's in the Faith Hall of Fame in Hebrews chapter 11. But what really happened there? What really took place there? How how did the Lord give them into their hands? Well, he used the Kishon River to flood and wash out Caesarea's chariots. As I said, chapter 5 is the poetic expression of what happens here. So let's look at verses 20 and 21. It says, From the heavens the stars fought, 
from their courses, they fought against Sisera. So God, again, is bringing heavenly forces against Sisera here on an earthly level. And it says, the Kishon River swept them away. The old age river, the river Kishon, march on, my soul, be strong. You know, if you've ever seen the movie Prince Caspian, the, the Disney version of that, at the end where the, the river rises up and, and wipes out the Talmarines, that's probably something of what happens there. God brings up this huge wall of water and washes out these 900 chariots. And I'm sure Sisera said, I didn't see that coming. But Barak is basically saying in his rendition here, God is the one who fought for me. He did it. He was my Savior. And because of that, I have more courage to keep following Him and to keep marching on, as we sang earlier even. To be strong. March on, my soul. And so it says in verse 16 that Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Hersheth, the Goyim, and all Sisera's uh, troops fell by the sword, and not a man was left. The major threat of this force of chariots and troops was completely removed, completely destroyed. And God's people were now set free from that. God used Barak. But as Barak went west, Sisera went east. Verse 17. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber. Remember him? Remember him? The Kenite. Because there was an alliance between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the family of Heber the Kenite. You know, back in World War II when the Axis forces were falling apart, you know, the Allied forces were coming in. And they were going to capture Berlin. But they still wanted to capture Hitler, didn't they? They wanted to get that kingpin to have that person wiped out. The same is true of Sisera here. But the question is, had Sisera outsmarted Barak? Verse 18. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come in, my lord. Come right in. Don't be afraid. He entered her tent, she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Um, excuse me. Lost my place. Uh, Please give me some water. She opened a skid of milk and gave him a drink and covered him up. Stand by the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and says to you, is anyone there? Say no. So what's going on here? He, you're thinking, okay, he, he ran into a tent. What kind of security is that? Well, I don't think we fully understand Mideastern uh, hospitality. That when a person enters your tent, you cannot barge in and go in looking for that person, even if you know that person is in there. As, as such, that person is protected you there. Your guests, they are under your uh, protection. It's kind of like a Mideastern version of the Fourth Amendment. But he, he thinks he's safe. So Sarah believes he's safe. He's found sanctuary. And J.L., in his mind, is on his side. But God uses a tent wife to take out a terrifying warlord here. 
Pick it up at verse 21. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. And she drove the tent peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. And so Sarah said, I didn't see that coming. Now, if I were Heber, I don't want to tick off my wife also, because uh, if we're camping, you know. But she made a choice. She changed allegiance. She said, you know what? <laughs> no, we're not serving the pagan Canaanite king of Jabin. We are serving the Lord and his people. That's who our allegiance is going to lie with, because he is the Lord. And just because this person has power at the moment does not mean that they're right. Might does not make right. We are aligning ourselves with the Lord, the living God. And so, basically she nailed him. Bet you didn't see that coming. Verse 22. Just then, Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there Sisera with a tent peg through his temple, and just so we know what happens, he's dead. Deborah's prophecy had come to pass. This warrior, Barak, was successful but bested by a woman. And I'm sure he didn't mind being beaten by a girl that day. And it says in verse 23, On that day the God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the Israelites, and the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. And then if we read at the end of chapter 5, verse 31, we find out that 40 years of peace fill the land. <laughs> so as we get to the end of this maybe unexpected, crazy story, what do we take home? Well, first of, one, first of all, God is calling us to walk by faith and not by sight. It's great when we've got Othniels and Ehuds and Deborahs in our lives and we can see them and we can follow their example, but ultimately we have to follow the Lord. He is the one who is speaking to us and calls us to trust Him even if leadership is not heading that direction. We need to keep our eyes on Him and not forget about Him. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, We walk by faith and not by sight. Number two, let me ask you this question, especially some of our older saints. Who might God be calling you to inspire? Who might God be calling you to inspire, to speak encouragement, to speak challenge, to speak truth, to speak into them what God might want to do in them and through them? And they can't see it yet. Who might God be calling you to inspire, to help them see all who the Lord is first of all? Because you can only go forward because you have faith in the Lord. But then what He might want to do in you and through, and how He might want to use you. Hebrews 10, 24 
tells us to spur one another on to love and good deeds. Who is God calling you to inspire? Number three, are you available to God's call when He calls? Because you know, when we get to chapter 5, we find out about some of the other tribes in the area who kind of sit on their hands. We find out about Reuben, and it says in the Word, there was much searching of heart. In essence, it was the analysis, it was a paralysis of analysis. They thought way too long, and before they could do anything, it was all over. Are you, are you overthinking things, as God might call you into something? Or are you saying, it's not my monkeys, not my circus? It's not my problem, I'm not affected by it. Whereas God has called us all into one body to bear one another's burdens, to come alongside of one another. And yes, you might not be personally hurting, but we are all one body. And we're called to be salt and light in this community. If you think about it, sin wasn't Jesus' problem, it was our problem. But he stepped in to deal with it. Are you withholding yourself? Are you withholding yourself? Through your time, your treasures, your talents, investing yourself. If God is calling, are you saying, I'm available? And last of all, with all in this, in this, and I've said this at the beginning, in the end, God is the true Savior. Yes, he raised up Deborah. Yes, he raised up Barak. Yes, he raised up Jael. He was the true Savior throughout this whole story. And the same is true with the Lord Jesus Christ. He may work through you. He may equip others. But ultimately, we're trying to lead them to the Savior, to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one Savior, and it's Jesus. And we're calling people put their faith in Him, not in us. Again, (laughs) these people fought against Sisera, Jesus fought against Satan, and He won. And that is uh, what we need to do, is keep our eyes on Christ. And worship team, I am going to call the audible, and we're going to just go into our time of Celebration of communion. So, again, I want to focus in on the fact that the Lord Jesus is that Savior. And a few things, if you've not experienced communion here at Berean, we practice open communion. That means if you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're welcome at this table. It's not my table. It's not the table of the Berean Community Church. It is the table of the Lord Jesus, and He invites you here. And the requirement is that you have put your faith in Him. That you're trusting Him to be your Savior and your Lord. There's no other requirement. Kids, if mom and dad know that you put your faith in Him and they've said okay, then you're welcome to take it. If they say no, you need to honor them and we'll have another opportunity in the future. But let me talk about the style. Today we're returning to our passing out and taking together style. And not because that's necessarily demanded in the Scripture 
And we'll do some other expressions of this in the future. But I'm doing this on purpose today. Because in communion, yes, we celebrate our union with Christ. What He has done in going to the cross, taking our sin upon Himself, and then giving us His salvation. So we are celebrating that we are in Christ, but we are also in Christ together. Jesus gave up His body to make us one body together. And we need to be reminded of that as we're returning in this season. Jesus has called us to be the body to one another. So that's a little bit of what we're affirming and taking this together. That Jesus has made us one body together. And that has a lot of repercussions in how we love each other, how we come alongside of each other, how we spur one another on to loving good deeds, even inspire one another, if you will. So, we always remember that we come to this table because we had a need. We were sinners, and Jesus is the Savior who deals with that. And so we come, we come with some self-reflection out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Where the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man, a woman, ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So for a few minutes here, let's just do business with the Lord. Ask Him to search our hearts. Show us where we're out of sorts with Him. And then take Him up on His promise that if we confess our sin, He is faithful. He is just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And then we can continue in this celebration just remembering what a great Savior He is. And He came for us.